Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. Thanks for being here and uh, bringing the church into these walls. I hope everybody is doing well. If you're new, if you're a guest, thanks so much for coming and uh, gracing us with your presence this morning. Hope you have a phenomenal experience here. If you desire to get to know anything more about us or who we are, we've got a welcome table uh, back in the back. Love to answer uh, any of the questions that you have about who we are and how you might fit in here. We're going to go ahead and take offering now. So uh, deacons, come on down and serve us. And I just want to remind you that it is Christmas. You guys need that reminder or do you know, right? And, be, and because you know that it's Christmas, uh, you know that tomorrow is Christmas Eve and uh, we're going to gather here two different times, once at 5 o'clock, once at 6.45 to celebrate Jesus um, on the 24th. So come, Christmas Eve services, a real special time here. We, we love to do them. It's kind of one of the things that has become a part of who we are here and uh, just love for you to come, bring family, bring friends going to sing a lot of songs and uh, just some really cool things that are going to happen that I'm excited about. So come on back here tomorrow and uh, we'll celebrate Christmas together. Okay, so uh, we're going to launch and if you have your Bible uh, with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're actually going to be in um, the same passage. This will be the third time that I've taught out of this passage. So if you're here for the first time this week and you think, wow, he's really skipping some things. We, we dealt with them in the previous couple of weeks, but I'm just going to dig into some new material this morning. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we don't get the chance to dig deep in a passage, but for whatever reason, this Christmas, I just can't get out of Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to be there, so turn in your Bibles there. And uh, let, let's, we're, we're talking about Christmas, so can we, um, can we just state the obvious regarding Christmas? That, uh, that sometimes our expectations of Christmas are here, and then the reality of Christmas falls somewhere right around here, right? Is that, uh, I've heard, I'm not a mental health expert, we've got some in here, but I have heard anecdotally, and there's science behind this, there's data, I just don't know it. But regarding like the Christmas season, it's, it's the season where depression actually spikes. It's the time when people, you would think they would be the highest, but for whatever reason, we're the lowest, and I don't know all the reasons behind that, but I have a thought, and, I, and my thought kind of goes like this. I wonder if, if, if it's because of this, that when Christmas comes around, um, we, we associate with Christmas a certain way that it's supposed to be, right? Maybe in our past, we had like one or two dynamite Christmases, and, for, and we can't shake those expectations, and we put those on every Christmas that comes, or, or we've watched enough movies. I was talking to Coach Boyd this morning. He said he's just been on like Christmas movie marathon. He's ready to be done, right? But the, the Christmas movies tend to set this expectation of, boy, it's going to be so great, right? And our expectations are so high that whatever happens, it's, it's hard to meet that, right? And the gap between reality and expectations is, we'll, just, we, we, we'll call that the gap of depression, the gap of sadness, the, right? It, 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 um, it, it often, Christmas doesn't live up to what we think it should be. And if you tend to have high expectations regarding Christmas every single year, just know that you are in good company. And the company that you are in goes back actually to the very beginning of Christmas. High expectations God, really? I'm expecting this, but it seems like you're delivering something less. 
It's woven into the very fiber of the Christmas story. But there's some things that we need to learn from it. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Familiar verses if you've been here for our Christmas series. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Talk about big expectations. Matthew chapter 2 is riddled with huge, high-level expectations. The magi, the wise men from the east, catch word. God tells them in a unique way. That was last week. That the, the long-awaited promised one, the Messiah, was being born in Israel, right? And he sends them from the east to the west. Now, regarding the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament, they're, they're pretty big, right? That in the Messiah, in this king that would come in the line of David, who would sit on David's throne, but he's not David's son, he's actually above David, right? Huge expectations. That in the Messiah, when he would come, that sin itself would be undone. That's a, that's a big expectation, That through the Messiah, the king, the anointed one, who would sit on the throne, God's anointed one, that through the Messiah, peace, not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of flourishing and harmony would burst out from him and cover the whole world. Shalom, covering the planet. And that this Messiah would sit on a throne that wouldn't just be over Israel, but would be over all peoples. He would be a worldwide king. Those are some big expectations. And so the wise men hear that this one has been born, and they begin to make their journey to the west because it's worthy to check out. So the wise men go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place that makes sense to go to, right? If a king is going to be born with expectations up here, and if it's going to happen in Israel, then Jerusalem is the room. It just seems to be the place where that would happen. It's the place where big deal things happen. It's the place where big deal people dwell. If anything of substance is happening in Israel, it's not a bad guess to assume that it's probably happening in Jerusalem. Let's talk about, just for a second, let's talk about place and expectations and how expectations can be varied depending on the place or the location. Let's put it like this. Let's say you come to me and say, Brian, I want to take you to a show. I want to take you to a play. And I say, great, that's awesome. Let's do it. And we set the day, and I say, where are we going? And you say, well, we're actually going to New York because the show that I'm going to take you to is in New York City, and it's on Broadway. Okay? Now, New York City and Broadway is a specific place. Okay? And if you tell me we're going to show in New York on Broadway, because of the place that you're taking me, I now have a certain level of expectation about what that show is going to be like. 
I don't know what the show is. You haven't told me the name of it, but simply because of the place, I've associated that Broadway, New York City show there, high expectations, right? That's what we do. If, on the other hand, if you said, hey, Brian, uh, I want to take you to a show. We're going to go to a play, and we set the day, and I say, okay, great. Where are we going? And you say, the show's in Lodi, okay? Now, I, some, does anybody not know Lodi? Anybody never heard of Lodi? You've passed through it if you've ever gone to Cincinnati, Columbus, or Dayton. It's kind of one of those pass-through towns, okay? If, and if you say to me, we're going to a show and the location is Lodi, okay, great, happy to go with you, but, my, but now just because of the place where we're going to see the show, I have, I have a different set of expectations in my mind because of where we're going to see it. You see, understand that? Now, here, if, you're, if you live in Lodi and you're involved in community theater, I'm not putting you down. I'm not making fun of you. I'm just, I'm just helping to draw out the point that location and place have a whole lot to do with expectations in our mind. Okay? Let's continue. So, uh, here we go. The wise men head off into Jerusalem seeking the king. Verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Okay, so the wise men from the east make a journey hundreds or thousands of miles. Talked about that last week. Huge, epic journey to see the Messiah. They find themselves in Jerusalem, the place where you might expect to find a high-level king who was born, and they get there and they ask straight-up questions. We've come to worship him. Where is he? Nobody has any idea. No clue. They ask a straight question. Where is the Messiah? We've come to worship him. And what they get in Jerusalem is lots of head-scratching and stalling. Right? All the people who should know, who it would make sense for them to know, none of these people know. Okay? So if you're, if you're a wise man, you just made this journey. You go to the place where you have a high-level expectation of the king who makes sense in Jerusalem. You go there, ask where he is. Nobody has any idea. That would be, one, confusing to start with. And two, it would be, uh, it would be frustrating, I would think. Right? Because if the Messiah is really born, if this, this king has come, why is it that nobody in Jerusalem has any idea that this has actually happened? Why is it that everybody is scratching their head and saying, oh, hold on a second, I got to go talk to, to these, right? And there's all these meetings happening to try to figure out what are these guys talking about? These wise men from the east, these high-level rulers are saying that a king has been born. Does anybody have any idea about what they're talking about, right? You, you would think that in Jerusalem that they would have a sense that this thing is happening if indeed it's happening. But nobody does. 
verse 8. And he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Okay, so here the wise men have a decision to make. Expecting a certain kind of king, and they associate that kind of king with a particular place that would be Jerusalem. Nobody in Jerusalem has any idea that he's here. Herod, scratching his head, hold on a second, let me go, figures out, I guess the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, go tell him. Herod goes and tells him, now the, the wise men have a decision to make, right? This king is clearly not Jerusalem caliber, or at least nobody cares that he's been born, nobody knows that he's been born. He's probably maybe in Bethlehem, we think. That's, if he's born, that's where he would be. Lodi, that's, that's where you got to go now to see the king. Wise men have to make a decision. Well, um, are we going to keep searching this thing out? Or are we going to head back home? Are we going to keep on this adventure and make our way to this king that we believe God has told us has been born? Or are we going to... Well, our expectations were here. It's clearly not that. I guess we're going to pack up and go. Well, what we're going to see is that the wise men, I think, know something about God. Either the wise men know God, or they just know something about him. And what they know about him is going to influence their decision to actually go and to check this thing out in Bethlehem. Here's what the wise men know about God. They know that God has a track record, a tendency, a pattern in him to under-promise and over-deliver. Seems to be what God just loves to do. God loves to step in initially with us and underwhelm us in order that over time he may then be able to overwhelm us. And armed with this knowledge, the wise men make their decision about how to proceed. So let's let's just flesh this out for a little bit, that God is one who likes to under-promise and over-deliver. Back in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, but you can. Um, There's this scene where Samuel, who is the judge and prophet over Israel, um, has been told by God that he is to go and anoint a new king. But Samuel has no idea who this new king that he's going to anoint is. The only information that Samuel has is that he's to go to the house of Jesse, and one of Jesse's sons is going to be the king that Samuel is going to anoint. So Samuel makes his way to the place where Jesse and his family live, and then in verse 6, right, Samuel makes the trek. Actually, it's to Bethlehem where Samuel goes. And Samuel meets Jesse and says, Jesse, hey, I've come and I want to hang out with you and your boys. Let's sacrifice. Let's celebrate. And Samuel all the while knows what he is doing. He's looking for the next king. Okay, so here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. When they came, meaning Jesse, now Jesse's bringing his sons in. When they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab. Eliab is Jesse's oldest boy. When Samuel looked on Eliab, and then he thought, quote, surely, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, or before me. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look 
on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so Samuel walks in. It's him and Jesse, and then the sons of Jesse start parading their way through. And as soon as Samuel just, he doesn't need to see any of the sons beyond the first one because Eliab looks like a king. He's, he's the kind of young man that you look at and say, wow, this guy has got kings stamped all over him. He just, he looks the part. He looks like Jerusalem. He looks like the high-level place. He looks like the high-level person. And God has to step in immediately say, whoa, hold on, Samuel. Don't get too excited yet. Hold on. It's not him. He looks like it. Boy, this guy has the appearance of being what could be an awesome king. Looks the part. But Samuel says, no, uh, sorry, um, God says to Samuel, this is, this is not the one. Samuel, you have a tendency to look at things from the outside in a certain way. But God says, I see things differently. I can see all the way to the inside of things. And so what Samuel is told by God essentially is this. Not that guy, but Samuel, you've got to trust me. I know that it makes sense to you. But, but you have to trust me with this. And then Samuel lets Eliab go by the wayside. And we pick up, right, and then the, the other sons keep passing through. Pick it up in verse 10. Here we go in verse 10, right? Remember Samuel looking for the next king to anoint, waiting for God to say, this is the one. Verse 10. And Jesse, right, the father of these sons, made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he thought, uh, and he said, and Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And then he eventually comes. The youngest is a, is, a, is a young boy named David. And David is the guy who's got the job that nobody wants. He's the youngest of the family. He's clearly, it seems to be the smallest because at some point Jesse catches wind and knows what Samuel is up to. And Jesse, right, probably like Samuel thinks, well, I guess if I'm going to have a king from my line, it's Eliab. He's the guy. Right? And after Eliab is not the one, he marches the others right in front of him, all seven sons right after the other. And then at the end of that, Samuel says, do you have any others? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I guess there's one more, but he's, he's the youngest and he's out tending the sheep. Even Jesse, even the father thinks, really? None of these? None of these seven here? None of these? No, these are my best. The, these are the king material here. These are the ones who give the appearance of this, this guy could sit on the throne. But, but there is one more, but probably not him. Right? David doesn't look the part. David doesn't, you don't look at Brother David and say, wow, I got some big time expectations for this guy about sitting on that throne and doing a heck of a bang up job at it. Nobody gets that sense, even his dad, right? But yet, what does God do? David's my guy. Don't worry about appearances. Don't worry about how it looks now. David's my guy. And you look at David and you think, wow, that's, uh, that's underwhelming. But what God is going to do through David over time, 
is overwhelming. When you look at David, you think, wow, God, that's an under-promise. You're setting the expectations low with this guy. But then with David, what does God do? He over-delivers with him. It's It's a pattern in God that he just seems to love to do that, it, it gives him joy, right? And let, let's, let's run this out just one more, one more layer, right? Uh, so David is going to be the second king that Israel ever had. The first king was a guy named Saul. And Saul was a guy like Eliab who looked the part of the king, right? The description that we get of Saul before he's anointed as king, the first king, is that he is a head taller than everybody else in Israel. Meaning like you're in a crowd, you're seeing that like just a bunch of a, like the tops of people's heads and then you can see Samuel or you can see Saul's face, right? He's just, he's just taller and bigger. His stature is more grand and more regal than anybody else, right? So when the Jews chose their first king, Saul was a, Saul was a sensible choice, he looked the part of the guy that you wanted leading you. He looked the part of the guy that you wanted to lead you into battle. He, he seemed to be a high-level expectation king, right? In regarding appearances, and they didn't do it this way in Israel, but if they had had a democratic system, and if that it was, you know, public, uh, if it was the, the vote, right? We, we vote here. Everybody gets a choice in who we're going to choose to lead us. If the Israelites had gone with that sort of a governmental system, then, uh, and if they had gone through the process of identifying certain candidates to then vote on, well, of course, Saul is the guy who makes it through the primaries, right? He, he makes it past the local village level, then he makes it past kind of like the region, then he makes, he makes it to the national level as a candidate because he's the kind of candidate that everybody gets excited about voting for. So Saul's going to be on the ballot, and he's the guy that you're going to say, that that's our guy. If we want to go forward as a nation, that's our guy. Now David, right, if, if David were in a, in a democracy and had to, right, just kind of go through the ranks, the sad truth is, is that David wouldn't have even made it out of his own family, not like David's not even like appointed to the village council. David doesn't make it out of his family, right? His his older brother's the guy that like, he his older brother's the one who's the leader and the influencer in their own family beyond Jesse, right? David David doesn't even make it out of like the entry level, and, and even if he did, nobody's voting for him because he doesn't look like it. So in appearance. Everybody's voting for Saul, nobody's voting for David, just in appearances. But then, but then the actual, what actually happened through each of their reigns? Well, regarding Saul, Saul was a washout. He was a, he was a grand disappointment. You had your expectations real high with Brother Saul, but what you got is something way far less. Now, regarding David, uh, David was an all-star, right? Your expectations were pretty well down here, right? He's the runt of the family. But, but, but you look at his track record over time, and, and boy, Dave, David was, the Jews still regard him as the greatest king they have ever had. And when, right, and the Jews, they don't think Jesus was the Messiah, but when they look to the coming Messiah, they think, wow, he's, he's going to be like David, right? Just this respect and this awe, but watch out for appearances. Because when God moves among us, he comes in and it looks a certain way. And if you don't have eyes to see it, 
you might just miss out on something huge. Right? Uh, think about it this way. Um, Genesis chapter 3. Right? If, if God is one who likes to underwhelm us initially in order to overwhelm us later, God likes to underpromise in order to overdeliver. What, what the enemy does is the exact opposite. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent slithers into the garden. And what does the serpent do? The serpent overpromises and then underdelivers. Isn't that, isn't, that what, isn't that what the enemy does? Comes in and says, hey, I got something for you. Right? And you look at it and you say, Woo, this is Jerusalem. This is Saul. Wow, this looks awesome. And there's all these promises associated, and it's going to be so good. And Adam and Eve, if you just ate this fruit, you'll be like God. And th- like life will like, go to a whole new level if you just eat this fruit. And the serpent just like lays on this over promise. It's going to be so fantastic if you listen to me, if you do this thing. And then Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. They partake, unfortunately. And we have, all of us, from that day on, we continue to partake of sin, but they eat of it. And what they find is, wow, serpent, you said this, but what I'm experiencing now is horrible. This is terrible, right? I'm sure that it tasted good initially, but then like five seconds later, it all comes crashing down, right? So there's a pattern that is emerging here that I want, we've got to see this, that the enemy is very good about over-promising and under-delivering. And if we don't understand that, we might get taken and we might find ourselves in some big trouble in certain areas of our lives. But what God often and regularly seems to cherish doing is to underwhelm us initially with whatever he's introducing into our lives in order to then over time blow past our expectations. God is one who underpromises in order to then over deliver. He finds delight in doing so. Okay, so... Back to the shepherds. So the shepherds here, no, not Jerusalem. The king's not here. Nobody knows that he's been born. You're going to have to go search him out in Bethlehem because that's where we think he's supposed to be born, right? And the shepherds, instead of packing up and going back home, right, saying, oh, he's not going to meet our expectations. No, the shepherds know that God is an under-promiser and over-deliverer, so they, they go to Bethlehem to check this thing out. Verse 10. Here we are. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, let me make sure that I read all. Okay, yeah. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, because the star appears again, right, out of Jerusalem. Now they know where they're going. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. Okay, so the wise men make it all the way to the place where Jesus, the young child, maybe he's one, he's, he's for sure under two years of age, but by the time they get there, he's uh, maybe a year, year and a half old, something like that. And so the wise men get there, and what they do is two things. One, they worship him. They bow down prostrate before him and say, wow, you are, you are our king. And then two, they give these lavish gifts that they have brought all the way from home, all the way from the east. Now, if I were in their shoes, just being honest for a second, if I were in their shoes, I, I might be tempted to second guess the giving of my gift to this king. 
I might be tempted to second guess. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't give this extravagant gift to this child, right? Because this would be my thinking. When I was back east and I heard the news, right, the star rises and I catch wind from God that the Messiah has been born, in that moment, what wells up inside of me, right, I should give this king a phenomenal gift, right? It, that made sense back east when I caught wind of the Messiah coming, right? It made sense for me to say, yeah, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, costly gifts. That made sense. And so they packed their gifts up. Then they made their way all the way to Jerusalem, the place of high expectation where they might find the king. When they get to Jerusalem, they're ready to give these gifts, right? Because it makes sense to me to give an extravagant gift to a soon-to-be-anointed ruler that's going to do all these things. It makes sense to give that kind of a gift to that kind of a king in that kind of a place. But now, right, they had to find their way all the way to Bethlehem. And then when they get to Bethlehem, when they get to Lodi, when they get to Bethlehem, they come to this unimpressive structure. It's not even Mary and Joseph's real house. It's like their temporary place while the census is going on. So they get to this temporary house, and they walk in, and it doesn't take you long to see that the parents of this baby are not, they're not high-level expectation people. They're not, they're not the kind of people that you'd expect to give birth to a high-level king. I mean, the father, hi, Joseph, I'm, we're the magi from the east. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a carpenter. Oh, huh. Interesting. Everything about this scene that the Magi step into, everything about it is unimpressive. Unimpressive all the way to the core. And so in that moment, I'm just being honest, I would think, wow, I brought these costly gifts, these expensive things Because it made sense to me that the Messiah is deserving of these things. But now in Lodi, with the carpenter father, and potentially with the animals surrounding, and like Mary, like nothing here, I don't know that my gift now makes sense in that place. And so I'm tempted now to to maybe just give a portion of it or to withhold it and then just maybe chart out time and see if this unimpressive baby from this unimpressive family living in this unimpressive house in an unimpressive town, maybe, maybe I should hold the gift back until he actually becomes something just to verify that this is actually the right guy because he doesn't seem to be the right guy. But yet, what do the wise men do? They do nothing of the sort. They don't hold anything back. As soon as they see him, bam, prostrate, worshiping on the ground, and then they give all of their costly gifts they hold absolutely nothing back. Why? Because, because I think they know this. Because they know God or they know of him. I don't know which. But what they know is that when God initiates new and beautiful things, often at first it does not appear to look like much. The wise men know that they're looking at David and not Saul. But they know how that story patterns out, so they worship and they give. And if we're going to follow in the line of the wise men and receive the child-born king plus all the other things that God wants to initiate in our own life, we're going to have to have eyes to see that which is not obvious. It's a certain level, it's a certain way of looking at things that isn't just looking at things as they are. 
right? In, 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 in the New Testament, maybe, maybe the word might be discernment. I don't know, but it's a, it's a certain, it's, it's a way of looking at things with spirit eyes, with Holy Spirit spiritual eyes that might help us to see things, not for what they appear to be for everybody else, but, but for what God has infused into that thing. Right? It's eyes to see not what is now, because what is now doesn't look like much, but over time what God will do with this thing, this underwhelming thing, this under-promising thing, what God will do with that over time. Sometimes we have to have eyes to see that in advance or we'll miss out on the thing before it becomes the thing. Right? And the wise men could have very easily missed out on the baby before he became the king. Right? So following God essentially is this, and we know this, following God is a faith-required endeavor. Right? And faith is the, is the substance of things not seen. You, you don't, right? I'm, not, I'm not seeing it in a certain way, God. It doesn't look like a certain thing right now. And if I were just going based upon my own vision, my own sense of discernment, my own understanding, I'd walk away from the thing. Right? But no, but we have to have eyes of faith to see things not just from our perspective but from God's perspective which then and only then allows us to receive the thing the, the things that God wants to give us so here's a question for us what what kinds of new things is God initiating in your life what 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 is he what is he bringing into your sphere now right because God is always about doing new things Right? We talked about this last week, that, that, that God has done stuff in the past and we look back and we celebrate him for those things, but we don't get stuck there because God is a God of new things, right? And if he's the God of new things, it means he's bringing new things into us, into our space, into, like around us all the time because he wants to do new and beautiful things among us. What is God bringing into your life right now? that if you don't have eyes to see it, you'll miss out on it. If you're looking for Saul, it ain't coming. If you're looking for Jerusalem, God doesn't usually show up that way. If you're looking for God to show up and do this thing, well, be careful because God doesn't overwhelm, he doesn't, he doesn't overgive us in he underpromises. He underwhelms us initially so that we can receive it by faith, so that we can watch him do something extravagant over time. We've, we've got to be able to enter into this understanding of him or we'll never be a participant in life with him in all of the ways that he wants to do all of the things in us and around us. Anybody familiar with the company Apple Computers? Most of us, most of you, if you just look in your pocket right now, you've got one of their devices. Um, Apple computers under Steve Jobs had uh, one of the most incredible runs of stock uh, that the stock market had ever seen. Just an incredible, like up and to the right growth trajectory for the company under his second term as leader of the company. Uh, Right now, it's actually the largest publicly traded company in the world. And under Steve Jobs, I don't know if it's the same way now under Tim Cook, but under Steve Jobs, there was this pattern that Apple is a company engaged in. And if you, if you didn't know about the pattern, you, you might have missed out if you're a stock trader. Here is the pattern they engaged in. 
If you're a publicly traded company, uh, every quarter, every three months, you have to give a forecast of what you think your company's going to do, how much you're going to sell, all the, right, all the business that you're going to do in that three months. And you give, it's like a weather forecast. Well, I think Tuesday is going to be rainy, Wednesday is going to be sunny, right? So here's what we're going to do. Every time Apple, under Steve Jobs, would give a forecast, they would underwhelm you. They would, they would, they would under-promise. You look at the forecast and you, like, and you think, wow, if you think that's what your company's going to do in the next three months, if you own stock, you're thinking, sell, 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 right? I got to get out of this thing because clearly the company has peaked and now it seems like they're coming down, okay? Regularly, when they would forecast the next three months, they would underwhelm you. And then after the three months, then when the earnings came out, like the earnings would like blow everybody's expectations. Like, wow, they killed it again, right? And then everyone's like, wow, Apple's awesome. And then what would they do? Then right after they would report this massive earnings, then they would give a forecast for the next three months. And what they would do is they would say, ah, but the next three months we're thinking, well, probably not going to do as well, right? We're probably going to come in line somewhere down here. And it was like, oh no, freaking out. Like the company's peaked. I got to sell, 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 right? And then what, then three months later, what would happen? Report earnings. Bam, blow everybody's expectations, right? And then what do they do? Forecast, next three months, under promise, three months later, report earnings, they over-delivered, right? So Apple was in a cycle of, regarding what they told you they're going to do, under-promising, but when it came time to report what they actually did, they over-delivered. And that was the pattern under him, under-promise, over-deliver. Now here's why I tell you that. If you were a stock trader and you did not understand that this was how Apple this is, how they, this is how they operated, right? Be careful when you listen to what they say. Be careful when you look at the thing that they're telling you because if, if you don't understand that they under-promise and over-deliver, you're going to miss out on the greatest stock run that we've seen in the modern era. You're going to miss out on it because you don't know how they operate, right? But for those, for those who knew, okay, the forecast is coming, they're going to under-promise because that's what they do but we're going to get in. We're actually going to buy more, okay? Under promise, buy more, and, and hold on to it, right? Because they keep blowing the expectations out of the water. If you don't know what Apple does, you miss out. If you know what they do, you're able to enter in, right? Now, this, this is so important for us as followers of Jesus because we have to understand that God operates that same way. He loves to, and I don't know why. I don't know why he loves us, but it just, it, it's how he is. He loves to underwhelm us initially in order to blow our expectations later. He loves to underpromise and then over-deliver. It is his sheer joy to do that. He just loves to do it, okay? So God, unlike our world generally, loves to underpromise and overdeliver, and he is the greatest at doing that. And he does it in the Messiah. High expectations. Boy, we're expecting something big. But no, he comes, he comes to Bethlehem. Really? Doesn't look like much. Carpenter's son. We're here in Lodi. Ah, doesn't seem like the place that this Messiah would come, right? Seems to be underwhelming. But then over time, watch what he does and what does he do? Well, now that baby that's born in Bethlehem is now sitting on a throne above all thrones 
under promise. Woo! But he over-delivered. Look at Easter, right? There's themes here. There's patterns here. You look at Easter, and you see Jesus on the cross. And man, it looks, it looks like we don't have Jerusalem here. We've got Bethlehem. We don't have Saul here. We've got David. On the cross, Jesus died, right? In the Roman world, when you die on a cross, what that means is you lost, you're the loser. Whatever you were trying to do didn't happen, and they got you, okay? So it looks like a loss. It looks, like a, it looks underwhelming when you see Jesus dying on the cross. But then, hold on. Don't, don't sell the stock at that point. Don't run away. Don't assume that something wrong is happening here, because if you just wait three days, then you'll see, boy, he, I guess he didn't lose. He won. Well, he won big time. Didn't expect that. Right? Didn't see that one coming, but wow, I'm glad I clung to him. I'm glad I kept holding on because had I let go, I would have missed the three days later resurrection thing, right? And then finally, when the, when the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts, um, right, and you think, wow, what does it look like when God just comes and, and he inhabits the human heart and he lives and dwells inside of us? Well, the first observers of the Spirit of God indwelling people looked at them and thought, it doesn't look like much. It seems, like these, it seems like these people are drunk. It seems like there's just some weird things happening here. And they, and they looked at this thing and thought, wow, this is underwhelming. This doesn't seem like much. But no, you would be mistaken because watch these individuals over the next several years and you will see what it looks like when the Spirit of God dwells in a person and then everything gets flipped over on its head from individual lives to society itself. We have to be careful that we don't miss God. And we will miss him if we look for him the way we look for everything else. But God says, no, you have to, you have to, you have to know how I operate if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be able to receive from me, if you're going to posture yourself in a way that allows me to keep doing new things in and around and among you, then you have to have a new set of eyes to see me at work, the great under-promising over-delivering one, the one who loves to underwhelm us so that we can just cling to him and say, no, God, I doesn't look like much, who can then overwhelm us. He loves to do it, and we don't want to miss out on that. And let Christmas be a reminder that this is how God moves among us. Band, come on back up. Let's pray, and let's sing some more songs. Father in heaven, thank you that you are faithful to tutor us and to teach us about yourself. God, that you, um, not just through your word, but God, by your spirit, you, you minister to us and you retrain us to see you in the ways that you really are. And Father, we pray, I pray that you would help all of us to see uh, you in the way that you are, that you don't wow us from day one. God, you don't operate like that. You don't come in and as a flash in the pan, just overwhelm us. But God, you come in small and you come in quiet and you come in unimpressively. And Father, only those of us that have eyes to faith are able to receive that. So Father, we ask that you would give all of us eyes of faith to see even now, God, those small, unimpressive not flashy things that you're doing, that you're initiating in our own life. 
God, because we don't want to miss anything that you're doing among us. We don't want to miss a thing. So help us to enter in with you and to receive and to receive well. Thanks for loving us so well. Thanks for underwhelming us regularly so that you can overwhelm us with good things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.